Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1999. And by Grabthar's hammer, we will... Review the The film Galaxy Quest Hello everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are watching some of the best films ever made, and we are using that to compile a list of the top 100 films of all time. It doesn't matter if it was made in the United States. It doesn't matter if it was made in the 1910s. We are trying to find the best films ever, and when we do, we're going to launch them into space. And Amy... It's interesting that we're launching them into space because we are starting our space miniseries. I mean, I know last week was kind of an unofficial kickoff to this series, but we are going to be looking at films in space, and we are starting off with a really fun one today, Galaxy Quest, which is kind of a an outlier, I think, if you're thinking about films in space, because I don't think you often think of comedies in space. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's funny about, like, being surrounded by the infinite cold blackness, which will kill you. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. You really brought it in dark at the beginning. <laughs> um, you know, I will say that uh, for everybody listening, you know, we're doing things a little bit different just to kind of switch it up, try new things. And we always want to hear your opinions. We're making this series a lot more based on what you want to hear us talking about. And then we would kind of pick what we want to talk about. And together we form a perfect list for each miniseries. So you can head over to my Discord or discord.gg slash Paul Shear or Discord. Uh, dot gg slash hdtgm and on both of those there are unspooled boards where conversation will be going on and we continue conversation about the movies that we're talking about here and it'll also give you a place to even submit a t-shirt designer or two because amy we haven't launched a t-shirt in quite some time no and i'm about to be going out into public i want to have some fresh new gear man i want something i can rip the sleeves off that's a bonus I think we need to figure out some new unspooled T-shirts, whether it's about a movie that we've already done or, uh, you know, just a generic 
not generic, but just a regular unspooled one. I'd love to see some more some more uh, merch. Yeah, and while we're kind of talking about getting aggro, ripping our sleeves off, if you're listening to this and you think, you know, I'm a pretty creative person, I'm pretty funny, I'm pretty smart, I'm pretty cool, even if you just think you're, you know, three of the four, you should be a contestant on our game show, Screen Test. It's a game show that we do twice a month over at Stitcher Premium. It is probably one of the highlights of my week is like writing these questions, making them be like fun and strange and you have to do things you never thought you'd do before. And then we judge you for it. And we're usually sort of cruel, right? No. Well, no, it is. You should come in. (laughs) (laughs) No, we we've never had, you know, we've actually never had a bad contestant because everyone is coming with a real sense of play. And as Amy's always saying, it's karaoke rules. So just bring your best self and you can sign up. Uh, You can do that on the discords or you can sign up on our email, which is unspooledpod at gmail.com. And in fact, when you're reaching out to us about being a contestant on Screen Test, we're going to give you the kind of question that we like to ask people. So I would say, and we're going to get into this under this episode, that Galaxy Quest is the high point of Tim Allen's live action acting career. But we are in the year 2021. Tim Allen is trying to make a comeback, man. Tell us the perfect movie that is going to be the Tim Allen comeback that wins him an Oscar. What is the Oscar Tim Allen movie? Pitch us the plot. Go. That's right. I want to see Tim Allen become the comeback king. I want him to get up there, get that statuette, give a speech that makes everyone just like cry. And then knowing the way Oscars work, they'll probably like hate him the next day. We're still mad at McConaughey, right? Is that still going on? No, we love McConaughey. Really? I think we do. I forget. People get mad so fast. Who knows? Anyway, I am excited to do Galaxy Quest. Now, how we came up with doing Galaxy Quest right now to kick off the rest of this space series is that we put a call out on Twitter and we were like, what do y'all want to do? What are the best space movies? Like, not just like a space movie you love. Like, what is an essential space movie? So many people said Galaxy Quest and it was basically calling my bluff because I've never seen it. And so that is why we have chosen Galaxy Quest from the list of like contenders that were like very, very strong, very, very strong. I'm taking the plunge. And then I realized we're going to be doing this episode with like Paul Shear, Galaxy Quest expert. Somehow I missed on this this entire side of your personality, Paul. I did not know you were like a Galaxy Quest like master. No, barely. Not at all. Not at all, Amy. Not at all. I'm just a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a big, big fan. Uh-huh. Well, all right. Google Galaxy Quest Paul Shear. <laughs> um, so, Amy, let's activate Unspool it. The year is 1999 and the world's population exceeds 6 billion. Bill Clinton is acquitted. Dr. Kevorkian is not. He is found guilty of second-degree murder for facilitating voluntary euthanasia. The Columbine High School massacre leaves 15 people dead and 24 injured. Napster is released. MySpace is introduced. And Bluetooth is announced. And worldwide, individuals and corporations feared that Y2K would wreak havoc on their computer systems as they entered a new millennium. That's right, baby. Will Smith! Uh, Anyway, the popular movies include Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, The Sixth Sense, The Matrix, and today's film, Galaxy Quest. Amy, who's in it? Who made it? What's it about? Give me the deets. All right. 
Galaxy Quest. It is directed by Dean Pariseau and it is written by Robert Gordon from an idea by David Howard. Now, the idea here is that there's these aliens called the Thermians and they kind of look like octopuses, but then they disguise themselves by looking like dorks with bad haircuts. These aliens called the Thermians are in trouble and they mistake the stars of an 80s sci-fi TV show for real intergalactic heroes. So these fake heroes who are Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, Daryl Mitchell, and Sam Rockwell, who are already kind of like estranged as a group because they've been doing 20 years of conventions together where Tim Allen is just like the swaggering jerk hero. They get beamed to space where they are supposed to actually stop pretending and defeat the bad guy. I would say that this movie, now that I've seen it, is basically like Star Trek in reality in space. That's fair, right? Very fair. Yeah. Take a listen. Well, screw that. How are we supposed to get through this? Hollister, do you have the sequence yet? Okay. The sequence is... Two, two, four, two, three. What is this thing? Four, I mean, it serves no useful purpose for there to be a bunch of choppy, crushy things in the middle of a whole thing. No, I mean, we shouldn't have to do this. It makes no logical sense. Why is it here? Because it's on the television well, show. forget it. I'm not doing it. This episode was badly written. Galaxy Quest came out on Christmas Day 1999, which was actually, I think, a cursed date for the film because it found itself being forced to slash its R-rated origins to become a PG-rated kitty holiday blockbuster. And I gotta say, this was also a cursed date for music lovers because we're about to get smooth slimed. That's right. Smooth slimed from the sweet, sweet tunes of Santana and Rob Thomas. This is actually the second time we've had like a Santana, Rob Thomas song that's been, I mean, they were just like all over the charts. Smooth was actually number one for 10 weeks. So there's a very good chance we're going to get smooth slimed again. But I will say when I was reading the lyrics to Smooth, which I haven't actually ever done, I guess I never thought like, please tell me your poetry, Rob Thomas. When I actually read what Rob Thomas had to say, It had a little bit, I think, of like a Galaxy Quest under to court. Like, I'm going to read this line to you, and I want you to imagine that this is Tim Allen singing it to himself in character as Jason Nesmith at karaoke. And you said, this life ain't good enough. I would give my world to lift you up. I would change my life to better suit your mood. Because you're so smooth. I don't know. I I don't know if if Tim Allen's character would have the wherewithal to to take those lyrics in. I mean, it feels like that may be a song that a more intelligent, a more in touch with himself, Tim Allen, as Jason Nesmith might sing. But I don't feel like that's a go-to for Jason Nesmith. I don't know. I want you to really think about it. He's saying, I would give my world, my world, my planet, my earth, his mansion to lift you up. He gave it up to go help these people on another planet. He changed his life to better suit them, their mood. And because it's 
well, now he's like kind of talking about himself. But he's so smooth. He's so smooth. He has not lived a real life. And now he's going to stop being slick. He's going to be a real hero. Hmm. You don't think he's going to get drunk hmm. on whiskey and sing that and it's going to take some resonance? All right. You know what? You won me over. You know, you you are the karaoke expert. So I don't want to I don't want to ever undercut your expertise in that field. So if you believe it, I will get behind it that uh, that this is a song of Jason Nesmith. And I appreciate that. And Amy, speaking of what is going on in the mind of Jason Nesmith, I want to know what is going on in the mind of Amy Nicholson. This is the first time you've seen this film. I imagine it's a tricky situation because there's a lot of baggage that comes in with a cult hit, right? Oh, I'm, I'm expected to love this. I am expected to feel a certain way. And it, as we've seen in the show, it's always a little bit tricky to kind of balance the expectation versus what it actually is. And the first time that you've seen it and, and coming in really, cause you really didn't know that much about it. Um, what was your experience? Just walk me through. Yeah. I mean, I asked you last week, like, is Galaxy Quest basically Spaceballs? You know, because that was kind of what I thought maybe it was, was just like a different version of Spaceballs in space. And I found myself getting really caught up in a movie about fandom in 1999. Because I think what, what I hadn't really thought of when I was getting into the zone of watching Galaxy Quest was how just even the way we think of fans, not how like fandom itself even has changed since 1999, but the way we think of fans as kind of a group of people has changed since 1999 yeah. and kind of placing Galaxy Quest into this arc of nerddom. Yeah. I mean, because basically when I see the arc of nerddom, it's like, well, you know, when I was a kid to be like a nerd for something like Star Trek, which is what Galaxy Quest is riffing off of, was pretty embarrassing, Right. Like, if right. you were a Star Trek nerd, I mean, in 1986, William Shatner went on Saturday Night Live and just, like, yelled at people and called them losers. They did a whole skit about it. On your horse farm, all right, how many saddle-bred horses do you have? Uh, 34. Wait, wait, is that including the colt that was born earlier this week? <laughs> that mayor had a foal? Tuesday. Well, I... Guess it's 35 then. All right, all right. You know, before I, I answer any more questions, there's something I wanted to say. I, I, having received all your letters over the years, and, and, and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to be here, I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? I, I, I mean, I, I mean for, for crying out loud, it's, it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. I mean, I mean, how old are you people? What have you done with yourselves? You, you, you must be almost 30. Have you, have you ever kissed a girl? I, I didn't think so. And then I was thinking to myself, like, wow, we've really taken this leap because we went from... Star Trek fans are nerds and kind of losers and like their God, William Shatner is telling that to their face. And when you hear that clip, what you hear is like Saturday Night Live audiences just cackling. Like they're so happy that somebody said that these people are losers, right? There's like kind of a a real like catharsis, I thought surprising, not anger, but like there was a genuineness to that laugh. Like, yeah, screw those guys, right? People say... 
about a laugh like that, it's like, it's a term that an old writer I know used to say, it's like laughing with a mouth full of blood, which is just sort of this idea being like, it is a much angrier laugh. Like, yes, it's not like, it's not just goodwill. It's also like, go fuck yourself. Like, yeah, like it's, it, it is coming from a deeper hatred, uh, I guess. And um, yeah, I always, I always think about this. It's so interesting that you're talking about fans. I, I was going to talk about this at the end of the podcast, and then maybe what I'll do is just dole it out in dribs and drabs. But like you said, yes, I have a history with Galaxy Quest that I really want to make sure that as we discuss this, I stay removed from because uh, I don't think it's fair. My thing has nothing to do with this thing. But when I got asked to write Galaxy Quest, the TV show, which was one of the highlights of anything that I had really ever been able to do because I love this movie so much that is exactly the world that I wanted to embrace like this idea of fans and how fans have gone from that William Shatner world that go get a life to now they are the biggest stars in the world like this Galaxy Quest now is Guardians of the Galaxy now right like that's like we, we've transcended they are the A-list actors now we've really changed our whole scope and that was really for me the way I really wanted to retell the story and put it within the guise of what fandom is and and truly how that's affected so many different people and and kind of made a business for these conventions I went to these conventions when I was a kid and I saw you know Walter Koenig and Jimmy Dewan and uh you know Leonard Nimoy on stage and I they're in a small hotel and you'd walk in these like weird little things. And me and my dad would go to these conventions and buy posters and VHS tapes. So I, I know this convention that Jason Nesmith is in and the whole galaxy quest crew is in, in the beginning. And now to get an autograph like this, you have to go and wait on lines and pay hundreds of dollars or, or, you know, a thousand dollars for a photo op. And, you know, I went with Kate Mulgrew who was on NTSF, um, as like the head of our organization. And I went with her uh, to see even like one of the biggest Star Trek conventions. And that was even still small by comparison to, and that was giant, but to where fandom has gone, like the Star Trek celebrations and the, and the comic cons, it really is. We've really taken a turn and that's in 21 years. The the whole thing has changed. Yeah, it really has. Like, I mean, I'm old enough in film critic years to remember a time probably, what, six or seven years ago mm-hmm. when every website that was a film critic website had to have geek or nerd in the title because you had right. to be a geek. Like you had to be a nerd. You had to be like geekmoviefan.blogspot.org because that was how people took you seriously. You're like geek was reclaimed and rebranded. And so like uh, to see Galaxy Quest kind of as the middle of these two endpoints of this like gigantic shift from like fuck geeks to everybody should be a geek was really interesting. And I was like, I wanted to talk to you about it in this episode, like how much Galaxy Quest itself might have played a role in that. But first, I thought we should talk about some numbers about what you're talking about here. So Comic-Con started all the way back in 1970, right? Like Comic-Con goes back. And then all through the 80s, when William Shatner is making fun of them, Comic-Con in San Diego taps out around like 5,000 people. Is like that's how many people are going to Comic-Con. Right. And then in the 90s, 
like it starts to not just double, it like exponentially increases from like 5,000 to about 35,000, right? Yeah. And then it makes this other huge leap, not far after Galaxy Quest comes out. And it goes from like 35,000 to like 80,000. And then now it like leaps again to like 130,000. So it's almost, it is like kind of exponential parasite multiplying on itself. But there's these moments, like it doesn't do it consistently. It's never consistent growth. Right, right. It's like, here's seven years of us being at this level. Kaboom. Now we're like double that, then kaboom again. And so I want to, I want to talk about like how I think the late nineties made it okay to be a fan and figure it out. Because I was trying to think about when I thought geeks were actually cool for the first time. And I think it is when I was a kid and older kids I knew were really excited that the Star Wars movies were coming back into theaters, like in the late nineties. Well, right. Yeah. The the re-release, right? Yeah, the re-release. And like, I hadn't ever thought of Star Star Wars ever really in my life. Like I'd had a Darth Vader head, but it was just a thing that had happened. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly all these people that I thought were awesome were like really excited about the Star Wars movies coming back. And I was like, oh, it's not lame to be a Star Wars fan. And it caught me off guard that it was actually cool to be a Star Wars fan. I don't know if that happened to you. Well, no, it didn't. And it's interesting that you say that because for me, I grew up And all the popular films were Star Wars, Indiana Jones, like these trilogies. So I felt like we were the people, you and I, our people, our age, were the people bringing that forward. And then, you know, like it was cool. It was populist to like this. It wasn't like I'm reading Isaac Asimov in my corner, you know, and I've read I read a lot of sci-fi when I was a kid and I watched sci-fi, but these were the popular ones. And I think in 1999, you're also seeing Phantom Menace is coming back and the excitement about that and waiting. I remember waiting in a giant ass line in front of the Ziegfeld to see the trailer that just happened to be in front of Meet Joe Black. And then I had to sit through Meet Joe Black, which was awful or at least awful at the time I saw it. I think people say it's okay. And then because at the end of Meet Joe Black, they played the trailer again. And this is a time where you couldn't really like go home and watch a trailer. I guess you could maybe after a while, but it was an event and these things were events. And yes, obviously not everyone in the world was doing that, but I do think that the rebirth of Star Wars, the introduction of Marvel, the idea of Twilight, uh, the Hunger Games, like there, ha- like in the last 20 years, there have been these giant things that, that kind of stitched together multiple fandoms and and then ex- exploded it. Because I remember the first day at Comic-Con a couple of years ago, I mean, it's a while ago, it was like the last Twilight movie and people had been camping out there for three days and there was a lot of hubbub at Comic-Con because it was like, fuck these people coming here for Twilight. That's not Comic-Con. But it is Comic-Con now because genre became king. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think... That moment you're talking about now, the the meet Joe Black moment, to me, that seems like a really pivotal, I'm going to call it two hours and 15 minutes in film history. Like right. you went and bought a ticket to see a movie you didn't even care about because you cared about a three minute trailer. That's yeah. amazing. And it makes me kind of jealous in a way that you got to do like an outdoor activity with a group of people all excited. Because isn't that the greatest thing about being a fan is like being in that room with everybody who also just wanted to see that trailer. You know, yeah. and, and now like trailers drop in there online in two seconds and everybody like hates them immediately. But like 
or loves them for a day and then hates them again. But you participated in a fan thing. And I think a moment like that made Galaxy Quest kind of, I guess, like future forward, predicting where we were going to go about well, how much it, people like were going to celebrate fandom and how fandom well, should be reclaimed. And like how a Justin Long character who plays like the nerd in this is going to be the hero. Like a Justin Long is going to become a hero. Absolutely. And look, um, you know, I'll let you ask me any questions if you are interested about where I went with certain things. But I want to talk about this film and say, I, I slightly disagree with you. I think what this movie did was it shined a light on something that was very niche. And I think the anger of the Star Trek sketch on SNL was turned on its head because I think what this movie does is it makes you empathize with these people on both sides, right? Because yes, we all know William Shatner, but what about the Nichelle Nichols? You know, what about, you know, these these people who aren't the figureheads of the franchise and what is, what is their life like? And all of a sudden, you started to see these people more as actors and that, yes, the fans are there and they bring them something like it, you know, it just shined a light on something that I think that everyone kind of figured out. And I think it brought a little bit of not humility, but I think it, it, it opened people's eyes and hearts and minds to also the burden of carrying something iconic with you as an actor, as a performer that you can't really escape. And these people who love you and, and what that gives you and a chance when you can't actually get work. I mean, these people are literally running at the prospect to do a job. I mean, the reason why they get to space, you know, our crew gets to space is because, you know, they think that Jason has a job. And the reason why Jason, you know, when he says like, oh, I'm going to do this thing in somebody's garage, that was a real thing. There's a guy like, and again, I'm wrong with the details, but right in the intent, like a guy in Albany who was shooting Star Trek episodes, he built an entire bridge in his a garage and would actually hire real Star Trek actors to cameo. He did an original 1960s style Star Trek and it was fucking awesome. So that was real. Like people were doing that and, and like wow, cutting really? the ribbon. At, oh yeah. They're great. They're really fun. They were really, really well written and really, and beautifully shot. It was shot in, you know, in this time in the, in the nineties and the early two thousands where the technology was good enough to recreate the 1960s at home, you know, like you could build a bridge that looked that way. It was, it was great. Um, anyway, so all the idea this th that they're like, you know, opening up electronic stores and, and like, I mean, that's one of yeah. my favorite scenes in this film, honestly, watching it for the first time was Alan Rickman using the catchphrase that we know he hates to open up this electronic store and just seeing on his face the levels of despair and shame and anger. They, they should invent a German word just for the emotions on Alan Rickman's oh, face in this scene. He's absolutely amazing. Take, Take it from, from us. We've, we've been, been all over the universe. universe. But we've never seen space age values like we've seen here. At Take Value Electronic Superstore. By Grabthar's hammer. What a savings. Well, let me go back, and I'm sure you've done a lot of research, and I'll say this to you, Amy. So, 
You know, what do you think about the idea that J.J. Abrams calls this movie like an unofficial Star Trek film? Like he says, this is his favorite Star Trek film. Do you buy that? You know, kind of, because there was a poll that happened where they asked people like at a Star Trek convention to like rank their favorite Star Trek films. And they ranked it seven. They ranked it seven out of 13 films, which means it's like squarely in the middle. They ranked it right below the rebooted Chris Pine Star Trek. But above the sequel, above Star Trek Into Darkness. Well, um, yeah. And that's a lot of love. Wrath of Khan was first, if you are curious, which of course it of should course. be. Like, that's just a given. But to put this in the middle from the people who love this show the most, like in a way, I almost don't care what my opinion is. I care what their opinion is. And if they anoint it, then I say Godspeed. Well, I mean, as a Star Trek fan and as a Galaxy Quest fan, it really is like, yes, the base of this movie is in this real world, this fandom. But... Once the movie introduces its out, you know, its its plot where they're going to be in space, it becomes a full on Star Trek. It's a Star Trek episode, a, a really perfectly written Star Trek episode. It hits all the beats that you want, sometimes better than uh, than some of the Star Trek films. I will say this. It's a subtle distinction. It is a Star Trek TV episode done really, really well. I don't know if it's a Star Trek movie done really well. I think the movie is phenomenal, but the story that people talk about, that seems more of a episode of a week kind of uh, Star Trek episode, in my opinion. I mean, that's a very, it's a very, you know. I wouldn't say it has the grandeur of like a Star Trek movie. I think that's a good line to draw. I would say that watching this movie in 2020, it's funny that the special effects that they're making fun of from the early 80s TV show, the film within a film, yeah, look as ridiculous to them as I think late 90s CG looks to me. You know, I think right. all late 90s CG just looks like so goofy. But then when they do practical stuff in this film, it's like a mix of it where you have like actual people inside like the hippo. Yeah. Outfits. That looks really fresh. I guess it's, I don't know. I'm, I don't know why I like associate the special effect quality with the level because now we have like well, TV shows with like special effects that look better than any movie had in the 90s. I, but, I mean, I love, but I love the special effects in this movie because they don't feel overdone in a time 1999, when The Phantom Menace is coming out and we have the first fully created CGI character in Jar Jar Binks, uh, which I'm sure also can be disputed because I think there's like some line, there's another one that happened before. Uh, but that, this, we still have these suited characters. I think the reason why we connect so much with Saris is because he is actually there with them. They can interact with them. Like, yes, you have these moments of the the squid monsters and, and uh, you know, but it's... The rock monster is the worst, right? The rock monster is probably the the jankiest one, but because it was a rock monster, it actually works okay too. Because it's not, it's just boulders on top of boulders. It's not trying to be like this dragon with multiple mouths and stuff like that. You know, yeah. it's like I didn't you know, hate the rock monster. I thought no. the rock monster was really well done. I, I like that in the nineties, the people who were smart enough to be like, we can't do cool shit exactly. Like we can't do a photorealistic thing, so we're gonna yeah. do. T-1000 all in metal or a bunch of rocks. I think that's yeah. like a brilliant example of knowing your limitations. I don't like the little the little things with all the teeth, the little kind of... Oh, the miners. The, yeah, the shrunken Teletubbies. Those yeah. are really lame. But I think the practical effects on Ceres are incredible. What they put like snow crab legs that they stole from a buffet on his head. And wow. they have the great detail of, I don't know what you call it, his fantail spines. Like when mm. he's excited, they rise and they fall. Yeah. And that looks all practical done inside of a suit. That was cool as hell. 
Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm gonna miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do it. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba go do. Yes, Bruba go do. Bruba go do. That's right, Bruba go do. Well, I mean, I think we're we're talking a lot around the movie, and I still haven't really heard your full opinion, but I guess we'll kind of hear it as we go through. I'll say this. This movie is, I think, a real masterpiece in in writing and immediately setting the table like in that first scene of this film we are let into every one of these characters journeys and we know them and it's this moment where not the opening where you're seeing a clip from the tv show which also does set up the entire end of the film but when they're in that green room waiting you get everybody and you see like what you said about alan rickman he's like i don't want to do that line i got you know i had you know this many standing ovations and this one moment, you meet everybody, and that's hard to do in a big, giant ensemble like this, and understand exactly where they are. I, I am really impressed with how clean it is. It's so clean. And, you know, when you write in a big ensemble, it's always hard to kind of figure out, you know, how many lines do you give before you feel like you know these characters. And the way this film is edited, that that first 10 minutes is... I think is just masterful. Like as a screenwriter, like look at that first 10 minutes and it's all on the page. I read the script um, and yeah, it's all right there. I mean, the bit of that scene I think really pops to me is Sigourney Weaver complaining about her character, mm-hmm. about Gwen DeMarco. I mean, this is what she says. Like Alan Rickman is going on to the point that Tim Allen is sort of used to it. Like has he had his panic attack yet? But Sigourney like I like Sigourney saying what she's about to say here. In 1999, I think before we were having really hardcore conversations about the role of female characters in sci-fi. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I won't say that stupid line one more time. I can't. I won't. Well, Alex, at least you had a part. Okay? You had a character people loved. I mean, my TV Guide interview was six paragraphs about my boobs and how they fit into my suit. No one even bothered to ask me what I do on the show. You had the... Wait, 
Wait, I'll think of it. I repeated the computer frame. I mean, her just calling out right at the beginning, like they didn't even write me a character. Like nobody knows anything about me and all TV Guide did was write, write about my boobs. Ugh, like that, that really actually got my attention straight away. Because And by the way, that's what happened to Jerry Ryan, who was seven of nine on uh, a Star Trek show, uh, which this was, that was pulled right from that. She was on Star Trek Voyager, and that started in 1997. So that was something that was like, they only wrote about her body. Uh, And she was a great character. She's actually now on the new Picard show too. And I don't think that even changed. I think that was still happening at least as recently as five years ago when like a Marvel actress would be doing the tour. I mean, I was at some of these like, awful junkets and everybody would be like Thor what's your motivation and they'd be like hey you how'd you get in shape like that's all they ever would ask women in right. Marvel shows you know and I think having the like yelling about it more people being like ask her more ask her more ask her something about anything besides her workout routine would be great but have you ever heard me go on my thing about Renee Zellweger no have I gone on this to you no okay so this is adjacent but it's happening at the same time period I once like interviewed Renee Zellweger and like when I do that, I like to go and like dig up every old interview they've ever done at the Academy Library, which will open again soon, thank God. And when you go through Renee Zellweger's interview history, this really fascinating arc happens that had me really angry. You know, she bursts onto the scene, she's in Jerry Maguire, and everybody's talking to her and writing profiles about her talent. And like, she's this great fresh face. She showed up out of nowhere. Tell me your whole life story. Renee, we're really curious about you. And then... She does Bridget Jones' diary, where she gains a bunch of weight. From that moment on, she never got a good article written about her for like 15 years. Because every Bridget Jones piece was about, you gained weight and you lost weight. And that was it. And then it happens from then on. She becomes the girl that you ask about gaining and losing weight. Oh, you got in shape for Chicago. What did you do for Chicago? Oh, you gained the weight back again for Bridget Jones' diary. She never got a break. Like she, I think Renee Zellweger is an amazing actress and only had to field questions about her workout routine for 15 years. Can you imagine how maddening that is? No, I mean, that, look, you're totally right. I mean, we're we're talking about this idea that we're constantly in this battle of, well, that's what people want to know. I just read Gabrielle Union's book, which is fen- phenomenal. It's called, the, uh, We're Going to Need More Wine. And she talked about this whole this whole theory in great detail about just, being asked about whether or not she was going to have a kid and not not having any privacy in the fact that she was having trouble having a kid. Like she couldn't escape the question without getting too personal. And that personal issues of having IVF problems is not something that she wanted to discuss, but yet it's something that she always comes back. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a constant problem. But to bring it back to Galaxy Quest, I'll say, but that point that she brings up and about... No one writes about her character. That's her arc in the movie. She finally gets to do something besides repeating the computer. Because you have that hilarious scene when they're in like the ready room and she's just repeating the computer to the rest of the cast. She's like, oh my God, I'm doing it. I'm doing it again. You know, it's she arcs and Alan Rickman, you know, says, I don't want to say that line and then delivers that line for the first time in the film with the gravitas that you want when he is telling his dying comrade like that he will be avenged. And it's so powerful. And it's it and he really tru- underplays it. He chooses to underplay yes. that line. What did you think about his delivery? No, I love I mean, like, like it will be avenged. It was like it will be avenged. Alan Rickman 
We just did uh, January Man on How Did This Get Made. It's a terrible movie with Kevin Klein, Danny Aiello, Alan Rickman, and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, a, a bunch of great actors and actresses. And and uh, Alan Rickman's fan, phenomenal movie's shit, but Alan Rickman is phenomenal in that. And he is just, again, another person who I think has the the allure of a character that isn't really representing his entire career because I think people think of him as Snape and, of course, as the villain from Die Hard. I went to go see Alan Rickman in a play. My friend was in a play with him. And the amount of witches' hats that were in that audience that night was wild, right? And it and it allows that play to function on Broadway and sell out on Broadway. So there's a part of, I'm sure, Alan Rickman that's happy that he can do a play that's very good and well attended. But there's another part of him that when you look out into that fucking crowd, you see a bunch of people dressed like fucking witches, you know? And it's like, and that was, you know, wild to me. Like Alan Rickman actually did live this life twice, you know, or two iconic characters. I mean, that's what kind of struck me is he did this movie, you know, 1999, and then he does the very first Harry Potter movie two years later. It's like he walked back into it. He was like, I know what I'm getting into and I choose it now. Like He chose to do Harry Potter after he did this movie, after he did a whole movie about how fandom will mm-hmm. trap you. For some reason, whenever I think about Harry, um, about Alan Rickman and Harry Potter, I think about my best friend Eva going to the Harry Potter store that opened up here in Los Angeles, that kind of secret mm-hmm. weird one. Oh, I'm yeah. Not sure. mm-hmm. Yeah. And she went in and the one thing she bought was a pair of Snape earrings. But the Snape earrings just looked like pictures of Alan Rickman. So then she got to walk around with earrings that just looked like you're wearing Alan Rickman on your ears. That's hilarious. I mean, I mean, but look, I also think a lot of these actors and actresses, I I look to Scarlett Johansson a lot and say, like, I love what she has done with her career because she is a really interesting actress who is in these Marvel films. And I think that that helps her fund the other films. I mean, she gets to do a movie like Under the Skin, you know, because she's a Marvel superhero. And there's a lot of actors that use that power to get what they want done and live a life where they don't have to worry about the paycheck. I mean, you know, being an actor in this day and age, everyone's telling you they don't have enough money and they, you know, and and can you work for scale and can you do all this sort of stuff? And when you was, when you jump into one of these things, like, yes, I may be you know, jumping into, you know, for every, I mean, I guess for every Avengers or Hunger Games, there's a divergent, you know. Um, so, you know, maybe it's not always going to work out. But Poor Kate Winslet being in divergent. She's just too good to be in divergent. <laughs> Look, you try, you don't know. And, and you know, I think there's this gamble that you make. Like, do I ever want to worry about money again? And can I continue to keep my artistic integrity? And I think you see people struggle with it. I think that like, you know, there are certain actors and actresses who are having a trouble making the transition to do the other cool stuff. But then there are, you know, people really, it's a fine line. I think you look at somebody like Paul Rudd, who's a Marvel superhero, but is also a hilarious, uh, you know, indie film comedy star, does interesting stuff. Like you have to work almost 10 times harder to keep the, to keep it going. I, I, I understand that also in TV, you have to always kind of, once a, people associate with the character you have to work so hard to kind of change that perception and it's so easy to get pulled back in so anyway Honestly, i mean that's the, the premise like, you know? i think the tv one is maybe worse because i mean and you i don't really know the numbers here but my impression has been that they don't really hate marvel actors crazy right 
not well, crazy in the scale of what crazy used to be for an actor's salary because they've no. got like 30 of them in one movie. They can't pay them all like great rates. I think that like, okay. I think the Robert one who's Daddy getting paid Jr. is he's getting paid. He's yeah. getting paid because he was the first one. Yeah. And, but and they didn't every- lock him down. And then they were like, oh, Robert Downey Jr. He really like had our head underwater. Like, we're not going to do that again. But I appreciate when they use their clout to try to get attention to doing other things, because at least their name gets stuff greenlit easier. Or Chris mm-hmm. Evans taking up being a director. You yeah. Know? I think that's amazing. But like, and you're more of an expert than this than I am. But it seems like there would be something harder about being a TV actor, like having like a famous TV character, because then people have, okay, I have a theory, maybe I'm wrong, but that if you are famous for a film and if you are famous for a TV show, if these two people walk down the street together, more people are going to yell a dumb line at the TV show guy because there's the intimacy of thinking of you as a TV star. Is that right or wrong? That like nobody's going to yell at Meryl Streep, but they're probably going to yell at like one of the guys from The Big Bang. I agree with that. And I'd also even extend it more to the shows that you don't even know. Like obviously Big Bang is huge, but like my friend dated um, one of the actresses from Bones. And she wasn't one of the main actresses. She was like the, she worked in the lab on Bones, you know, and it was a, it was a more than recurring. It was a regular character on the show. And he said walking around with her outside of LA was an insane experience because she was a giant celebrity. It's tricky. These are TV stars. Galaxy Quest, these are TV stars. And I think what they're showing here is they don't have a lot of money. They did, or they, like Tim Allen lives in a nice place, but they have to work and figure out ways to do it. And I think that yeah. there is... Alan Rickman's apartment's pretty bad. Pretty bad. I mean, he doesn't even yeah. take off his makeup. I mean, that's one of my favorite jokes of this entire film is that you never see Alan Rickman without the headpiece on. And even in his house, he has the headpiece on. So it's like, when you think about Alan Rickman in this role, you have to think about an actor in sci-fi makeup the entire time. Like as far as like that is an actor who hates what he's doing in sci-fi makeup. He doesn't take it yet. He doesn't take it off. And it's, it's such a funny, um, you know, it's a great way to kind of keep it all together, but he is literally in, you know, he he has a hard time taking it off. He he appears on stage in costume in, you know, I think that's the heightened world of, of this. You know, whenever I went to a Star Trek convention, no one was dressed as their characters. Now, when I went down Autograph Alley, did I talk to people who were autographing different headshots of them in different characters? Absolutely. There was one guy who had four heads on a stick. He's like, I played this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy. And they're all the different characters that he played in Star Trek or, you know, whatever Babylon 5 or whatever show Stargate uh, that he has. You know, Richard Dean Anderson is an interesting, you know, actor in that kind of way, too. It's like, you know, he was on Stargate. He was MacGyver. You know, there are these people who like live this world where you always assume that they are doing well. And I think that that's part of what this movie is kind of talking about, too, is is there, you know, we're not really following them on their commercial career. We're following them on their emotional career, right? And how, uh, again, which is something that I was kind of wrestling with when I was writing 
the the continuation of it. I call it continuation instead of like a reboot. But uh, the idea being like, what are these things that were that were holes for them? And this show kind of helps them fill in because they all leave this. They all leave the end of the movie uh, richer and fuller for their journey. I mean, especially Sam Rockwell in in a performance you know modeled off of Bill Paxson from Aliens, uh, but is such a beautiful performance. It's so well done. Um, where he is, you know, a nameless, faceless person who gets killed. Like he is the red shirt in Star Trek, right? And and he is essentially, you know, living um this life where it's like, I know it, I know that I don't have long for this world. And then for him to finally get on the show at the end, like he becomes he becomes someone. By the way, there's a great book by John Scalzi. I believe it's called Red Shirts. I'm not positive. It's all, it's another, if you like Galaxy Quest, you got to read this book. It is it, one of my favorites. It's another uh, book I tried to uh, to kind of remake at a certain point. Or not remake or kind of do, but it's a, a beautiful, uh, uh, it's a great book. It's just, a, I don't even want to tell you much about it, but you would love it. I think, but yeah, like I think that there's a, this whole meta thing, like all these characters are, the show is giving their lives meaning. It's not like we're not listening to Tim Allen trying to get another job, right? We're not trying to watch Sigourney Weaver be like, she's not complaining about her work. She's complaining about their perceptions of what they are because of the show, how this show kind of deflated all of them and made them, took them from being three-dimensional characters down to one-dimensional characters in many respects. Yeah. I I think like Sam Rockwell's, Sam Rockwell's breakdown when yeah. he does the math and realizes, like, if we are imitating life, he is the real per- the only person who's probably going to die because, like, that's just his only job. I mean, if Sigourney Weaver is, is mad that she has to repeat what the computer says and be otherwise inessential and wait until her um, jumpsuit is increasingly unzipped until you can see her bra, like, her character right. at least does go on the arc. Like, Tim Allen becomes a real captain. She has to show her bra. And therefore, doing the well, calculations. No, don't don't say she has to show her bra. She is an active part of saving the ship. Okay. Well. Okay. So now we're getting into stuff that was cut out for the R-rated movie. But right. before we do that, I want to listen to Sam Rockwell's meltdown when he is like, okay. "I am the person who's going to die." Which I, before he even did the scene, he I read that he like drank a ton of coffee to try to be like as anxious as overexcited. Oh my god! And, and that his character's name is Guy. I think it's. I mean, to him, it was in the movie. It's like a callback to um, an actor named Guy Vardaman who did a lot of Star Trek. He was like a big stand in mm-hmm. on it. But it also makes me think of the movie Clue. How there's just people who have names like Guy and Body, where you know that they are yeah. there to you know be disposed of. Um, anyway, here is his meltdown. And as we play, I want you to think about how Sam Rockwell said that he almost turned down this movie because he was trying to make it as a serious actor. He was about to do the green mile. He didn't want to be taken as a joke in Hollywood. So he's like, if I do this giant comedy, can I go hence and become Sam Rockwell, the actor that I really want to be, the, you know, the Academy award nominated guy or winning. He won. 
And he convinced himself that it was okay to do this part because he thought about Sean Penn doing Fast Times at Ridgemont High and he thought about Michael Keaton doing Night Shift. And that if he did this movie, his quote was, I could do Guy Fliegman and still do The Deer Hunter. Yeah, but that's what I thought. I was the crewman that stays on the ship and something is up there and it kills me. But now I'm thinking I'm the guy who gets killed by some monster five minutes after we land on the planet. You're not going to die on the planet, Guy. I'm not? What's my last name? It's, uh, um, um... Nobody knows. Do you know why? Because my character isn't important enough for a last name. Because I'm gonna die five minutes in. Guy, you have a last name. Do I? Do I? Yes. For all you know, I'm just coming. Number six. Bobby. 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 You know what? I will say, he pulled it off. Like, I think Rockwell is one of our greatest actors at threading that line between comedy and like absolute tragedy mania chaos. Like he is one of the people, him, Colin Farrell, like if you can do a Martin McDonough movie well, you can do that. Like if you can walk that line. And I think that's a skill that I value incredibly highly in an actor's career. The, The ability to be able to do both. Anne Hathaway, she can do that too. God bless Anne Hathaway. Now there's a lot of people out there who I think it's actually getting larger and larger, actually, you know, of people who can do both. I, I think that I think that uh, Paul Rudd does that actually really well. I think Paul Rudd can deliver a really big, bold performance and then also can do these smaller indies that are incredibly serious and not, you know, goofy at all. I think Adam Scott has done that uh, too, to a certain extent. You know, there are these people who can kind of go back and forth. I, I, I love this performance. Uh, so 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 much. Um, Have you seen the mockumentary though? Are we talking about like career decisions? Yeah. That when Galaxy Quest came out, one of the things they did to promote it was that they made a fake documentary about the history of Galaxy yes. Quest, the TV show, as though mm-hmm. it was a real thing. Yes. So that in 1999, you could like flip to, I guess it was on E. E. And they would be talking about it as though you maybe had just missed, like in a fugue right. state, you had missed the Galaxy Quest um, phenomenon. But there's a moment in that doc where uh, the Sigourney Weaver character talks about the fact that she actually did have a choice. She was offered this part in Galaxy Quest to play Gwenda Marco at the same time as she was offered one line in a Woody Allen film, that having the context of being offered one line in a Woody Allen film in 1999, Mm -hmm. and that she wasn't sure she chose correctly. And the film sort of seems to lay out that she probably chose wrong, I think. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But into asking you to imagine like the alternate career she could have had if she had chosen the Woody Allen one-line film. I think about Carol Kane in Annie Hall. I I think about Sylvester Stallone uh, in Bananas. Really? Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. I guess. I uh, guess. Uh, yeah. It, I guess it was a big great. deal for him back then. Oh, also in the documentary, they talk about what Galaxy Quest could have been if they had made the version they wanted to, which was a Western. But to fully understand how the show has become what it is today, we must journey back more than 20 years ago when it was just an idea in the imagination of Frank Ross, the legendary creator of the show. Most people don't know this, but Galaxy Quest was originally going to be a Western. It was called West Quest. That was the original idea that he took the network was a Western. And there was those of us, I mean, we're the same characters. They were just, you know, walking around in chaps, you know. Well, we'd already shot the pilot when our research people came to us and said, Westerns are out. And he went, and that's how stuff happens in TV. He goes, yes. 
And he, we, we put it right away, it went to a Navy show. I very quickly rewrote the script and made it about Navy SEALs. It's called Navy Quest. And I said, how funny is this? They were in the, you know, an old ship. For some reason, that, quest, that clip made me remember Sequest. I was explaining oh, to yeah. this weekend that Sequest, I was going to watch DSV. Galaxy Quest, and I thought I was talking about Sequest, and it was a really complicated conversation. <laughs> um, you know, I want to just address this thing, because you may have more research than I did, but I thought I knew a lot about this movie. So, um, you know, this R-rated cut is really a, is a nothing burger. Like, there's no truly deleted scenes. There's nothing like they basically dubbed over a curse and they changed up a, a rip to get a PG 13 rating. Like it, it, like the script as written, which I have read is not wildly different at all. Like it, it's pretty much what goes on here. I think what they did in the editing process was lean a little bit more into the comedy, make it a little bit more brisk. Um, take out some of the Star Trek elements to just make it a leaner, meaner machine. Now, the original script... Were they script, worried about getting sued by Star Trek? No. I, I mean, from what I understand, this is, again, I'm not going off of any notes. I'm just going off of my... Intuition? My countless research into this movie that I'll probably forget certain things. The original script was this movie called, like, Captain Sunshine and the Journey into Tomorrow or something like that. Some version of that title. And that script wasn't really funny at all. Um, and it was, but the premise was really interesting about this guy, this Captain Sunshine, going into... Uh, back to space and then they took it and they were playing around with it and then they kind of rewrote it and retooled it and there's a lot of energy around whose script this is and how it became this way and but eventually it becomes this more comedic version then Harold Ramis is attached to direct this film Harold Ramis perfect for this film uh, I love Dean Pariseau, and Dean Pariseau does an amazing job. I thought Bill and Ted Face the Music was excellent. I, I'm a fan of Dean Pariseau, and for years after Galaxy Quest, I was like, why aren't there more Dean Pariseau films? Like, and then there was like fun with Dick and Jane, and uh, so I am, a, I am a fan. I'm just saying I also would have loved to see Harold Ramis tackle this because it feels so kind of in his wheelhouse. And now Harold Ramis, when he gets to the film, goes, well, I want, you know, a different actor here. And so he's circling... Uh, he wants Kevin Klein, which I love. I love Tim that Allen idea. Role? Yes, I loved him. I loved like Kevin Klein. There's something there, but the studio really wants Tim Allen. And basically, Harold Ramis is like, "But Tim Allen's not funny. I'm not doing this movie." Uh, and and he walks, uh, which is a you know absolutely nuts. But Harold Ramis, from what I understand, and again, I know that this is a sensitive subject about who put what in, but I think every there's a lot of shaping of the script and, and retooling of the script to become much more of the ensemble comedy that it is. And, um, and here's what I'll say. I would have loved to seen Kevin Klein or Alec Baldwin, both who were close in contention to play this role of Jason. And also, if I'm remembering correctly, he also wanted like Steve Martin was another one of the people he really wanted. So yeah, so it was like a great lineup of like these great actors. I think Kevin Klein would have been the best. Alec Baldwin would be great now. But all that being said, fuck all of them because truly, Tim Allen, this is his role. This is the perfect casting. This is no one, 
no one can do this movie better than Tim Allen, in my opinion. Like, because he is a TV star coming off a of home improvement. He's got, like, he's got that Shatner swagger. There is something perfect. I mean, it is, to me, there is no other performance that is even close to this in the Tim Allen movie realm. Even TV realm. It's a beautiful performance. It's well acted. It's emotional. It's hilarious. Uh, you know, and I know you got all sexed up when you saw his shirt ripped. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, one, I think you are smoking some interplanetary crack because I think Tim Allen is the weak link in this movie. Like, yes, you Whoa. are correct that he, this is the best Tim Allen performance. I mean, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't think he has that, I don't know, that slickness and likability that you would expect kind of like a Shatner at this period to be able to pull off, right? Like, I don't think he has, I think like Tim Allen. Think about it as a 1970s TV star. I know. Okay. Yeah. No, I have some ideas. But first I want to say what's wrong with Tim Allen. One, I don't think he has the range. Two, I think he's way too close to Buzz Lightyear. Like he can, he's just kind of doing that, like, I'm an egomaniac kind of joke, you know? And And I don't think it's that interesting like i mean toy story 2 came out like the month before galaxy quest can you imagine just like sick of tim allen in your ear being like i'm the coolest guy on the planet i i don't know i don't really buy him in this like he you're he's surrounded by top flight actors i mean to have alan rickman sam rockwell sigourney weaver next to you and then you have like tim allen just sort of goofing around being like the one who's supposed to be like the hero charismatic guy like no 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 yes it should be a tv actor I'm going to float some names at you and see if you agree with any of these. All righty? Okay. Okay. So my first idea was that it should be uh, that it should be John Larroquette. Okay. I, 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 I don't disagree with that. Okay. Great. Yep. Sure. I think he could do that. I think he could do like the big kind of stentorianness. But then I kept thinking about it and I was like, oh, maybe it could be. Um, By the way, you know, John Larroquette has agreed to be uh, his character from Night Court in the Night Court reboot. There's a Night Court reboot? Yep, that Melissa Rauch is doing. Melissa Rauch from Big Bang Theory, and she's playing the the daughter of Harry Stone. Whoa, okay. I need to process yeah. that. That's a little complicated for me. Sorry. Um, What about Ted Danson? Is it, right? Like 80s, no. Cheers, I don't the see, hair. You I don't, don't, see, I don't, see, I don't see Ted Danson because, okay, well, I, I'll tell you why. I, I want to hear your things before I start. Shooting okay. them down. I have I have two more ideas and then one that was actually a TV star who I, or a movie star who I think could have done it. Um, John Ritter, Three's mm-hmm. Company. I think mm-hmm. John Ritter could have really nailed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think here's my out of the box one: Ted McGinley, who played Jefferson Darcy from yep. uh, mm-hmm. Married with Children. I think he could have done this really well. Like okay, I think let- he's got that kind of like blonde bimbo look. And then I thought if you're gonna go big and get a movie star, Patrick Swayze, absolutely destroy it. Okay. Interesting. I, I I I like this. Here's where I'm going to say I have some issues with what you're talking about. Because they are all the right type, right? They are all leading men that have a little bravado, a little ego to them. But Tim Allen is this. Uh. Those people are not. John Ritter is too likable, okay? John Larroquette is, I think, too ultimately sexy 
And at that point, oh, like he, like that's I mean, what I want you to wear on a shirt. John Larroquette is too sexy. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like he, he exudes a little bit more of a charm and a finesse. You don't think this it. character should be able to turn that on? I think that this character needs to kind of sit exactly where Tim Allen is, which is um, a little cockier than he needs to be. Uh, a little, he is not the man who transitions to big feature films. He is not the person that America loves for anything else but this. He is living in this. To me, you put William Shatner and Tim Allen together and you and you squint hard enough and it's the same person. You put no. uh, I think so. I think so. I I I I think that the other people that you mentioned are not that. And I know it's it's a very like we're talking about a very subtle distinction. I think that the actors around him being great, I agree with you. I don't think that they they are so good. And I think they actually elevate him. And I think that the compet like you need someone like Alan Rickman to play against Tim Allen because Alan Rickman's acting circles around this entire thing. He's phenomenal, and I think he lifts up Tim Allen. Like when Tim Allen has to tell. Uh, the aliens that he has been lying. That scene is a fucking heartbreaking scene. I can't believe like that. Like you talk about range like there that I've never seen that. I've never seen that in a Tim Allen performance that moment. I mean, I get that Um, you're proud for him. Okay. We can listen to that scene. We're all actors. He doesn't understand. Explain as you would a child. We, uh, we pretended. We lied. Oh. Yes. You understand that, don't you, Mathazar? Mathazar, uh, I'm not a commander. I, uh, there's no National Space Exploration Administration. We, we don't have a uh, ship. But there it is. <laughs> that ship is that big. Inside, I've seen many rooms. I get that you're proud for Tim Allen, that he can do that. But you're saying you don't think that scene would be any better with John Larroquette? No, I don't. Really? I think that, I, I think that, I think that what you're, these people that you're talking about, and here's what I'll say, and it's a tough line here to, to walk, okay? But John Larroquette, John Ritter, uh, name the other, John McGinley. Ted Danson. And then Ted Patrick Danson. Swayze has my dream. Every one of them, people like. Yeah, people are supposed to like the Tim Allen character too. You're supposed to people, like him. You're supposed to go nuts people, when he walks on stage. Who's going to go nuts? No, people at that Star Trek convention like that Tim Allen character. This is not Tim Allen walking down the street, getting stopped. This is the only place where he is like, and I think William Shatner has that same kind of, this guy's an SOB attitude where those people are very well liked. I think that Leonard Nimoy was the more liked person. You know, whenever you, like, yeah, Shatner is the ego. For the love of yeah. Spock that his son did. It's got, a, yeah. it's got some emotional bits in it. I just think that there's, it's a hard it's a very hard thing to parse. I think this movie works and will be funny with Harold Ramis directing Steve Martin. I think it would have in- worked incredibly well. 
because Steve Martin can do all the levels. I think there's something about like Tim Allen is, I mean, I think very openly a hated, uh, a hated guy. And maybe that's more as it's gone on, but like he is. I mean, they're saying he was a jerk on set. Like Alan Rickman said that Tim Allen used to kick up the, kick open the door to the makeup trailer and then just say, number one is here. It's sorry, yeah, like, and, like Sam Rockwell yeah. said that like when they were in um when they were He's all sitting down, like, all the chairs were taken, that Tim Allen would just say, That's fine, I'm first on the call sheet, but I will go take a walk and come back when you're ready. And yet I think I think a nice guy can play an asshole more than an asshole can this can play like a charismatic guy that people want to cheer for. I look, I think it's a real semantics argument about like because like we don't know and, and we don't know what the other person would do. I think that that energy proves to me exactly why, you know, he is the perfect choice. And 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 maybe I, I'm telling you, I love Kevin Klein. I think Kevin Klein. I think Alec Baldwin. You know, Al, the, the, why I say Alec Baldwin, and why I say Kevin Klein is because they do have, like Kevin Klein a little less, but Alec Baldwin definitely has that. You're an asshole too. Like you need to make sure these people are an asshole. And Dan Fielding. Uh, John Larroquette's character there, like it's there has to be a couple things that are hit with this character. I think even the energy that he's bringing to the cast helps the performance of the cast. I think there is a sadness to Tim Allen, and there is a pomposity to Tim Allen that is very similar to William Shatner, and I don't think that many people have that. And you know that scene where he overhears in the restroom how the cast are all nobodies and the co-stars hate him. That was actually something that happened to William Shatner at a convention in 1986. Really? So yeah, so you're talking about this moment of like, oh, everyone's cheering him, but there are a lot of people there going like, this guy's a fucking loser. And I think that that this is like. His bravado is covering up the fact that he does believe he's a loser. The reason why he jumps in to aliens, the reason why he's doing this is to give his life, he to make him not a loser. And I think that those other people don't read to me like a loser. I think that Tim Allen is the the loser who is acting like a high status because a high status person doesn't do it. And I also want to bring up one issue that really disturbs me. No one is kicking in the door to the makeup trailer because makeup trailer doors open outward. What if you kick them really hard? And then you would break it off the hinges, but still it wouldn't probably go through. It's a trailer. I, I get in and out of trailers every day. You're you can't get that door you're open. You're calling Alan Rickman, God rest his soul, a liar. I am. I'm saying Alan Rickman, let's fact check that story. Maybe he kicked it on his way out. <laughs> Maybe he kicked it on his way out. He definitely didn't kick it on the way in. And if he kicked it on the way out, God damn it, that's dangerous because he knocked somebody on their ass. Um, okay. Well, I yes. will say I am unconvinced. However, okay. there is a documentary about Galaxy Quest that came out last year, like a real one, not a fake documentary. It came out in Guess who's in it? I know. I know. That freaked me out. Hi. <laughs> um, but in that documentary, they do do a defense of why Tim Allen is right for this role. Tim is not the obvious comedy choice, but Tim had in his life the experiences that this character had. Tim had just had a, a major television show stop, and now he was sort of out there in the universe with just a Santa Claus movie, and that was it. I think Tim understood that world of protecting yourself from the fact that you might be a one-trick pony, right? that that might have been the only thing you ever did. 
really related to this guy. This kind of a lonely guy, because when he gets home, he lives alone in this creepy house up in the hills, and he's drunk most of the time. But by the way, the other thing is, Tim Allen loves this world. So there's something really fun about that, too. I always feel like, you know, he really wanted to do this. Like, you know, and I think he brought his all. I think he knew he had to bring his all. But we could sit here all day and say, like, oh, well, this and that. But we can both agree, if we take Tim Allen out of the equation, Sigourney Weaver is phenomenal in this. And she's always phenomenal. But she's great. Alan Rickman, fantastic. Then you have... Uh, you know, you have Tony Shalhoub, who is doing this really interesting performance. And this is like, the, this is the stuff that we're talking about that got cut out. He was supposed to be a stoner, right? But they couldn't make him be a stoner. So they just left in all the stuff. They edited it around it to kind of soften it. And then they also have this whole idea of it where he's, you know, this idea of like trying to be the diverse member of the ship, right? Like his name is Fred Kwan. And then he like admits like, well, that's not really his real name. And he kind of does this thing to make himself look Asian, you know? Um, and I think there's something interesting about that performance because normally I think we've talked about certain things where like, oh, that's a racist or that's a, that's a, you know, that's a, ooh, that doesn't sit well. And I think because he played it just normally, but but more embraced, like an actor trying to identify as a race, not their own. That was more of a damning thing about what it is in this business to try to get these roles. So like he didn't play into any stereotypes besides trying to make himself something else to get a role, which I think is, uh, I think is fine. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I I think that that was a really, uh, a really funny choice. There's so much going around. Uh, with him. I remember there was like a Vin Diesel short film that he made that broke him onto the scene called like multifacial, which is a terrible title, but uh, or multifacial where he's like, I could be anything. I'm Italian. I could be black. I could be, I could be Latino. Like, like the whole movie is like, I can be all the races. That's what uh, got him cast in Saving Private Ryan, I think. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, like, and, like that, and, that short, I mean, his performance yeah. was short. And God bless him. Like, great. But I think it's like, I think that idea of like calling that out, you know, is really funny. And, 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 you know, we've already talked about Sam Rockwell, uh, you know, and I think that there's something to be said for the the aliens as well. I mean, these aliens, like, they created this language, uh, and I'm going to butcher his name, and I apologize already because I'm a fan, but Enrico uh, Colatoni, like, he... The reason why the Thermians walk the way they do, clap the way they do, that was all something that he brought in. They clap like uh, dolphin trainers at SeaWorld. Oh, it's so great. And then you have these amazing, you know, characters like Missy Pyle and Rain Wilson. Those are their first movies, Justin Long's first movie. Like, it's just chock full I mean, I'm of a great Pyle actors. Fan. Like, I love yeah. Missy Pyle. So to have Missy Pyle show up in this... Of course, makes me happy. I am curious, does Missy Pyle's character ever know that she's on a TV show when she comes back and she's like in like the new rebooted Galaxy Quest at the end of this? I, movie? I know. Well, can I tell you, like, again, I told you I'll tell you my little things. Can I tell you what I did in my sequel well, script? What did you do? What did you do? All right. So she was on that TV show, the reboot of Galaxy Quest that we see at the end of the film. And she becomes incredibly popular and she becomes the governor of California. Um, <laughs> and then Tony Shalhoub is her husband and he's like kind of this stay at home uh, husband. But this like part of like this like weird uh, larger plan of like these aliens infiltrating. But she becomes so popular because she was been on this show like as a kind of this. Oh, we love that character that uh, I always thought that was like a fun 
thing to do. I kind of have a, you know, Justin Long played a very big part in my sequel to it as well. But that also my whole, my whole sequel took away from these actual characters and kind of introduced another uh, swatch of them. I would want to watch that. I would want to watch that. That sounds fun. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri. You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can, or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella, the busiest man, or Irving Sardinus. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do it. That's right, Ruba, they should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Go do. Yes, Booba go do. That's right, Booba go do. Now I wanna I wanna say I wanna ask you, like, did you get the joke of calling the bad guy Saris? I started wow. laughing when I heard that. No, well tell me why. If I maybe I did and I've forgotten it, I don't know now. Well, it's kinda like a double level callback, right? Because okay. Saris has to be, and I Googled it and I was correct. It has to be a joke about the critic, Andrew Saris. Okay. Right? To name the bad guy after a critic, which is yeah. not just a thing even that they decided to come up with here. Um, that like George Lucas did that. It's kind of like a double callback, A, to the critic Saris, but B, to um, George Lucas, because he named the evil general Kale and Willow against Pauline Kale. And like Pauline Kale and Andrew Saris were like rivals. So it's like this double level, like double headed bow to oh, space wow. movies to name the bad guy Saris. But then I, I started love- like going down a rabbit hole and I was like, did they name Tim Allen Jason Nesmith because of the monkeys? Are they saying, oh, but no, oh, but Mike Nesmith would have been really good in that role too, I think. Wow. But yeah, is that like a monkey's nod? Like TV goofy fandom? I don't know. No, uh, Saris is a great name. Uh, it's a good character. The, the actor in that uh, as well is phenomenal. And he is, he is like a, just a journeyman character actor who you've seen in so, uh, so many things. Like once you see him without his makeup on, you will be like, oh, that guy, right? Of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ethan Rain. Ethan Rain is one of my favorites because he was on Buffy and that's why I love him so much. Um, that's fair. I mean, I think but, that what, um, like as a person who's seen this for the first time, the callbacks to other movies was what I appreciated. The idea that they try to fold in a Wizard of Oz nod. You know, like here we start in this world where we are in like the TV aspect ratio at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then we unfold to the big full screen aspect ratio. It, like this idea of passing the torch from TV landscape to film landscape, kind of like 
Wizard of Oz passed it from color or from black yeah. and white to color. I appreciated that. But then I thought, isn't Galaxy Quest basically like a feature length version of a trip to the moon in parts? It's like, okay, a couple of reasons. One, it is on its big grand sweep. The story of a bunch of unqualified guys who go to space, kill a bunch of aliens. Like Tim Alien's first leadership strategy is just kill everybody. You know, and they're like, okay, and that's kind of what happens. And then they go back to Earth with an alien in tow who they like beat up and kill in front of everybody. And then they're like heroes. You know, they tur- it's this idea of like turning people who go into space into heroes. They come back. We know what they kind of did. It's a little bit goofy. But I was surprised by how much the plot I thought had to do at the very end with a trip to the moon. That we're going, you know, here we are. Like we're making this big leap. That's what is it? We're making a leap of sure. basically like 95 years. And, there's, and we're still telling a bit of the same story. But then I started thinking about how like a trip to the moon also, what we were talking about is like this idea of imagining how people in the past imagined space. Right. You know, and there's that in this too. Like we imagined space as like this kind of, you know, clean white lines version, 1960s TV style, which is then what the aliens build in honor to like honor the show that they think it's real. And then when we get glimpses of what real space looks like, the production made designer made Saris's ships look totally different, unlike anything that we could have pictured. That they're like kind of green and insectile and alien looking, not just the characters, but the mm-hmm. ships they created. And the idea of being able to imagine other worlds, that even the aliens that we see, like the Missy Piles, are shaped like aliens for our own benefit. So there's this whole thing going in here about how we picture space and then how space actually is that I really liked happening under the surface of this film. I, I like, I mean, look, and you mentioned Wizard of Oz, and I think that was a very big idea that uh, Dean Pariso really wanted to do in the film as well, because he loved the idea that, uh, that you know, Tim Allen falls asleep and wakes up in Oz in space, but then they made him add that, like, shot with the limo, which, uh, you know, is a bummer, um, because you don't know if it's real or not. But there's so much here, and I think, like, on in a general sense, what I love about this movie is... It's doing and giving you everything that you want from a great sci-fi film, right? It's giving you that feeling of of a good Star Trek Next Generation episode or original Star Trek episode. It's action adventure. There's drama. There's growth. There's there's so much. And it's packaged in a funny way. And I think that, you know, I thought a lot about Guardians of the Galaxy when I thought about this movie because – Guardians does the same thing. Like it's a very funny movie. And James Gunn, I think, is an, another like lover of all things sci-fi, and, and you can see the love in his work. But he can also deliver it really funny. I think Thor Ragnarok with uh, what Taika did with that. I'm giving you a Thor movie, but it's going to be the best funniest Thor movie. And we, I think, often don't know how to mix the two. Well, it's a serious movie. Well, it can't be comedy, and it, you know, and I think that that's why there's like this buddy cop you know, this, this want and desire to do great buddy cop movies. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll sit here all day and bang the drum for running scared, but, um, Beverly Hills cop, but like, we don't often mix the, our genres like that, you know, buddy cop movie, I think took off in a good way, but sci-fi didn't really, we don't really ever get, rarely get to do that. We occasionally get to do it with horror when you see something like Shaun of the Dead. And there's a million other examples, of course, but, um, but I feel like sci-fi was this rare thing. So you get it all. So in a way, in a way, what I really truly love about this movie is it's great actors doing a 
typical popcorn sci-fi film, giving you all those pieces, but also it's pointing a finger at who we are as a culture and it hasn't changed that much. You know, and I think it's like it gives you two movies for the price of one, ultimately. Well, and that's now, what I really love about this. Well, now I'm thinking about when it actually does it in reverse. Like when in this film, it takes a comedy and adds to me what I love about a space film in it, which is the awe of being in space. Mm-hmm. And I don't, it, it doesn't do it that much, but I think when it does it, that's effective. The idea like when Tim Allen, comedy guy and the rest of the crew go through space in their, I don't know what you call them, like gelatinous dry cleaner bags. Yeah. The idea of what they have seen, the 2001 of it all, like has them silent and rattled. I appreciate that it appreciates that moment. Like that meant a lot to me. I love that moment. In the little moments where the score tells you that it also knows you're in like a magical, awe-inspiring space movie. Like when they're trying to Mm -hmm. back the um, spaceship out of the hangar. And yeah, it's like banging and scraping. But you get just this little bit of music. In fact, let's play just enough of this music that you, you can hear the awe, and then you hear when the awe shifts to just straight comedy again. I guess to me, like mashing up the genre, it has to go both ways. Like you can't skip out on the amazingness of what it must be like to be in space, to really like get to see all of that. Like you can't shortchange that at all. And then I start thinking, I like that we're doing this as our first feature in the series, because what we've been asking ourselves this whole time is if we send this movie into space, what will the aliens make of it? And here is an entire movie about aliens receiving what they believe is us from our media. Right. And they think of who we are as a really noble species. I mean, like when the aliens tell them what they think of us, when they say that they know us, I want to listen to that scene. Know us? No, no. I don't believe there is a man, woman, or child on my planet who does not. A year since we first received transmission of your historical documents, we have studied every facet of your missions and strategies. You've been watching the show, Lieutenant? Historical documents. Historical documents from out here? Yes. The past hundred years, our society had fallen into disarray. Our goals, our values had become scattered. But since the transmission, we have modeled every aspect of our society from your example. And it has saved us. Your courage and teamwork and friendship through adversity. In fact, all you see around you has been taken from the lessons garnered from the historical documents. A spaceship? No. This is a starport for the ship. Would you guys like to see the ship? That scene made me really sad because, you know, what Star Trek was trying to be when it created was this idea of like a utopian world where people from all around the world work together and we bring like peace into the galaxy. And it had this idea of who we could be as a populace. Like if we look to our sci-fi, not just as dystopian things of what to avoid, but as like an ideal of what we could be. And the idea that this is our version of the planet that we did beam out. And like these people saw it and they believed in us as good people. And the Galaxy Quest people know that they couldn't actually like live up to those ideals. Not just that they couldn't fly the spaceship, but that right. we weren't this beatific society that we really wanted to be. 
that we didn't live up to our aspirations. Yeah. I thought that was really, I thought that was really emotional. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I love, I mean, yes, I totally agree with you. And you're seeing something even deeper in it than I think most people see. I also will say I, I enjoy the joke of them, just their horror at thinking about Gilgan's Island and those people trapped <laughs> on that <laughs> island. Um, but wouldn't that have made it, yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Now I'm like, I mean, you really, you were like, watch Galaxy Quest. And now I just want to talk at you about Galaxy Quest forever. Wouldn't that have made an even better Galaxy Quest if there was a little bit of that, like, living up not just to the heroism, because they do just run around and shoot everybody, but living up to the ideals of being a really well-functioning society. Like, my boyfriend uh, was talking about yeah. this. Like, I would have wanted to add that into the script. Like, not just play acting the gun part, but yeah. like, living up to living well, up to the harmony. You know, it's so funny. I did, it, I did something in my, again... I think that there's something really interesting about that. I, I think, though, you're confusing two things, right? Which is what Star Trek did and what Galaxy Quest did. And I'm not talking about Galaxy Quest, the movie. I'm talking about Galaxy Quest, the TV show that we don't see, right? So I think Star Trek is a lot more thoughtful than Galaxy Quest. The, but take out the movie right now and just think about Galaxy Quest, the show. I think that Star Trek is more thoughtful than Galaxy Quest. I think Galaxy Quest is a run and gun, shoot 'em up, like more like Buck Rogers. And I think that Star Trek is offering up this idea of like the prime directive. Like, like for me, and I know this is an homage to Star Trek, but you know, one of the things that always connects me to Star Trek is like the prime directive. You can't interfere until, you know, we don't want to upset the culture and they're so hands off. We don't get any of that in this world. We get all the fun of the Star Trek tropes without any of the weightiness of the world that it's from. So in my defense to that is, I think they created an episode of Galaxy Quest, not Star Trek, which is, again, I know a very fine line to <laughs> lead. I, one of my, so my, the premise of, I'll just drib and drab in elements, but the, the premise of my Galaxy Quest uh, reboot, by the way, it's not going forward. Somebody, basically I had the unfortunate uh, moment in time where I pitched the show uh, to Paramount and then they took it and then we went to Amazon and then they took it and then everyone at Amazon got fired and then no one ever read my script. And it was because the new person oh, no. who came in at Amazon was like, no, 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 I'm not taking any old business. I'm like, well, it's not even old business. It's like IP. Like, no. And I guarantee you, it's been such a long time that I'm sure someone will come out and be like, oh, now I'm working on Galaxy Quest. It, it was a tricky thing for me to do and work on the show because like you and I are having this conversation, it was really difficult to find out what people wanted from this, this thing, this continuation. I call it continuation because I didn't want it to be a reboot. Um, and some people that were very closely involved in the project were like, this is all about Tim Allen. We need to make this a Tim Allen series. And I didn't really agree with that. And I, I had thoughts of how to move Tim Allen as a very pivotal point, but not being the center point of the series. And then other people were like, who were giving me notes had never really seen or are fans of sci-fi. So I was caught balancing a lot of different things, but my pitch and the thing that I really was trying to do and going off of what you were saying is, embracing the new world that we're in, this culture that we're in, and this idea that when 1999 came out, when 1999 happened, conventions are small. Now we're in 2017. Conventions are the biggest thing. And this 
there's a righteousness with all these new stars. Because now we're talking about A-list stars would be the stars of the Galaxy Quest reboot. The thing opens up at Comic-Con for the Galaxy Quest reboot. It's like, essentially, think of J.J. Abrams as rebooting his favorite show, Galaxy Quest, with The Rock and, you know, and, you know, all these giant celebrities. So that was like the premise of it. And um, the the big difference was that my, I was going to play the J.J. Abrams mystery box guy uh, who also gets sucked up there with them. I was kind of like the Guy Fleekman in this version. But the idea being that, uh, and I'm going now, I'm trying to cherry pick little things, but the one thing about this crew and what gets them into their first big issue in space is they take everything at face value. So they are, they are conned by aliens to do something horribly destructive, but they just like, they're like, you have to do this. You have to save our culture. Like you got it. Boom, boom, boom. And they just destroy everything. And then you find out later the twist of it is that those are the good guys. So basically our team of people just created an insane genocide because the bad guys tricked them out of oh, revenge. I love and, that you did that because I swear to God, I was like, how do we know the Thermians are the good guys? Just because well, the that, other guy's slimy. Well, that was that was kind of my instinct. And so I was like, oh, and this idea that like, we just go like we don't do any we don't think about things anymore and we don't we just run into this and so then yeah, all the characters it felt come in a little and, bit in this movie. Like it was kind of like America showing up in Bosnia or wherever and be like, right. We're here. Like it felt like that watching this version. So I love that you ran with it. Yeah. So I was doing a bunch of that sort of stuff. And then I basically had a, uh, for lack of a better idea, a Terminator two plot line that was running on the ground with our original cast. So we have our new cast in space dealing with their thing. And on the ground, there's like a Terminator two. There's basically, Saris's daughter has been plotting this revenge uh, for them murdering her father. And so she has sent this, this team out to, uh, to kill our original cast to get this revenge and capture them. And so there's like, there's a little fun thing going on there. Cause it was like, I don't want to just do a fish out of water again. I want to, I want to invest in this really fun, you know, play with other sci-fi tropes and all this sort of stuff. But anyway, uh, it would have been interesting. People would have hated it. People would have liked it. I would have probably driven me crazy on a certain level too. So it was an amazing chance to get to live in that world. And I think really what I was doing and talking to you was like embracing a lot of some bigger sci-fi tropes, but embracing kind of the, the tropes that we know now. And like Star Trek has gotten, we don't care about Star Trek anymore. We care about like, you know, the new space. We're doing different things in space and telling those stories. And I feel like that that was really what I also wanted to kind of mirror up to society. Cause I do think back in the day, if you really parse it, old Star Trek was a little bit more like we're going in there. It's like Xena. We're going to go in, we're going to fix a problem and get out. Star Trek next generation was a lot more philosophical. Should we be doing this? Why are we doing this? You know, there's a bigger issue there. And now we're kind of back to uh, more of a middle ground in, in our bigger popcorn sci-fi movies. It's like a little bit of both, but it's not like it's, you know, I wanted to kind of play with that idea that there maybe there's a little bit more morals, but they're still blowing up shit and stuff like that as well. I want to see do. that. I want to see that. I think that all sounds amazing. It was fun. It was very fun to write. It was fun to write Tony Shalhoub uh, and, uh, and Tim Allen. It was all great. It was, yeah, it was, and the J.J. Abram character was really my favorite thing to write to the whole idea of, uh, the mystery box. He had his own mystery box. Yeah. So, I mean, this movie, I think 
it's a comedy and it's a sci-fi film. And I think it actually bridges the gap because I think that we, back to your original, original point, nerdy shit. Like things are nerdy over here. Sci-fi is nerdy and comedy is not. And it bridges the gap. And maybe you are right. Maybe I'm going back to you and saying, well, look, maybe this makes it cool on some level. Even though this movie is not really a full hit, it really becomes a cult hit. But it bridges this gap. And it's so rare when we get to bridge that gap where it's like comedy and sci-fi and you get an audience of people. This is like, this, this movie is like my litmus test for people. I show it to them. Like, do you like this? Do you get this? Have you seen this? This and Bowfinger. Oh, so but, did uh, I pass or did I fail? I, you had the response that I thought you might have, which is, I think you're like, what? I still haven't really quite understood because we're talking so much about everything. I mean, where, where do you fall? I mean, you like it. You like it. I do really like, like it. it. I do really like it. And in fact, thinking about this shift again, about like nerd stuff becoming cool. I have one last theory I want to throw at you, which mm-hmm. I expect you to shoot down like I am an enemy spaceship, but that's fine. Okay. I have one additional theory. I'm not scrapping any of the ones before, but I'm yes-anding the rebirth of Star Wars, the like all of these things that kind of combine to make the late 90s reappraise the geek. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I would say that the geek has become the bully, but I think we're finally getting past that maybe a little bit too. Thank God. Um, which is a person who I think really represented the reclaiming of all old pop culture detritus as an honor, which is Quentin Tarantino. So could there be a connection between Pulp Fiction, Quentin Tarantino becoming a thing, everybody digging out their old lunchboxes, everybody being like, I really loved Hogan's Heroes or whatever, and all of this kind of 90s inward nostalgia that I think he makes cool, leading into a general sci-fi being a geek at all is cool. So I was building this thought in my head, and then I thought, oh, in between these two things, there was that documentary, Trekkies, that came out, you know, all Mm -hmm, about Trek mm -hmm. people and Trek fans. So I listened to the trailer, and I think you can hear, I think you can hear the Tarantino. They've got their own movie, Trekkies. I'd rather be known like as a spiner femme. I like that. Who's your favorite captain? Kirk. He's a stud. They're devoted. This is my third convention. 20 or 30 or more. 50 or 60. They're misunderstood. Welcome to Starbase Dental. So, um, this is reception. This is where the patients check in. It's not like any other dentist office I've ever met in. And they may just be the most intelligent life form you've ever met. This costume is the uniform that I've designed from the film project that I'm working on, and it should be noted that this is only a a prototypical version. Okay, so am I crazy? That's like kind of a Dick Dalish sort of sound. I feel like this is a synergy of geekdom in general. We are synergizing geekdom and reclaiming it is not that bad. Yes, absolutely yes. I think this is the beginning of the generation that is showing us the birth of people who were, uh, you know, basically brought up on Spielberg and and had all these little weird things that they wanted to say and do and make and expand. And, and so I, and, and Spielberg is this one. Obviously, Quentin Tarantino is influenced yeah, by so many but people. But he's here. Ducks. Why is it always ducks? <laughs> but I, but I, think, I think to me, yes, pop culture takes a turn, retro is in and retro just continues to grow. So it's not just about, it's not just about, uh, sci-fi. And again, going back to your first and best point, it is about fandom and how fandom has become more and more center stage. And this movie is 
not the beginning of fandom, but it's showing and appreciating fans. Fans save the day. And my thing to Justin Long plays a pivotal role, but uh, he comes back. Uh, but the uh, Justin Long and my thing, and this wasn't even the pilot script, but basically because he has that tricorder, uses that technology, and he becomes like an Elon Musk type of uh, person. Like not 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 uh, politically like Elon Musk, but just becomes like a, a tech guru because he has this like piece of future technology mm-hmm. that he was Gotta able to. Got to bring it all back to Saturday Night Live. But uh, but the idea being like like that. That uh, that this idea that the fans make a difference. Fans are the reasons why these things exist. Fans cheer everybody on, and at the end of the movie, when everyone ex- you know gets out of that spaceship at the end, you know everyone is everyone's equally uh, embraced. You know, and it's at this moment they've all changed. And I just think, and the fans save the day. This movie is about the fans saving the day. They would never of succeeded without Justin Long. Trekkies embraces fans. Quentin Tarantino embraces fans. He's a fan who gets to make movies. And I think many people in that era get to do that. And you see that more and more with people like Edgar Wright. And you just it just grows and grows and grows. I'm being very short-sighted with my list of people. But uh, fan culture is important culture. It's, it we're is. not too cool for school, yeah. So, I mean, I imagine that when this comes out, I know it doesn't do well financially, but do people like this movie? Where does it fall? You know, review-wise, everybody really liked this movie. It was kind of crazy. Like, all the major right. places were like, this is pretty fun. This is pretty fun. So the review that I pulled that was negative, to me it meant a lot. Because usually when I pull a negative review, it's from like a print paper. It's from like a traditional mm-hmm. uh, newspaper site. But I thought since this came out in 1999, rise of the internet web, rise of online film criticism, I would do one of our very first websites that reviewed this movie and did not like it in 1999. Mm. So this is not a new review. This is an original review from the late 90s. I wanted to say one quick thing, just as a side note. This is also one of the first movies to have a website dedicated to it. It was like a fake website that was uh, written by a Galaxy Quest fan. You can actually go back on the Wayback uh, web machine to kind of find it. But it was pretty cool that that was like, this is also, that's how early this was. Like fan websites. See, they, were, they were parroting a fan website. Okay, but go I ahead. I love that. Sorry. By the way, yeah. if you ever want to meet like a personal celebrity to me, my friend Michael Tritter, uh, he created the Space Jam website, the original one. Oh, I was oh, good. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. He's he's a hero. He's a hero. If you're listening to this, hey, buddy. Um, okay, so this is review. This bad review is from SplicedWire.com, and it is called Spoof: The Final Frontier. Director Dean Pariseau gets the atmosphere exactly right with a sea of paunchy, pimply, badly costumed actresses shouting out space jargon inquisitions to the faded stars of the long canceled show, as if they really were their characters. But somewhere along the way, Galaxy Quest forgets that it's meant to be goofing on the serial comic sincerity of Star Trek and its ilk, and lets the comedy stall out in favor of its own superficial earnestness. All that's left are a few scraps of laughs, and the absurdly nonsensical sci-fi plot about defending the innocuous nerd aliens from a nefarious race of imposing, barnacled space beasts. They run out of laugh material long before the movie ends, and Galaxy Quest must then limp to the closing credits supported by its actual plot, which is, by design... Stupider than anything Star Trek ever devised. Wow. Oh, who cares about this person? Forget him. No, no, no. No, no, no. I don't How, agree with it at all. Don't How dare you dare say you? that to the writer of SpliceWire.com. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's interesting because I also feel like what I love about this movie, and I think is important about whoever eventually takes the mantle, if they ever do take the mantle, is you have to love sci-fi. You have to love fans. I would say Star Trek, 
But I'd also say you have to love what's going on right now. And this movie was made with love. This movie wasn't made with the blood in the mouth kind of thing that we were talking about earlier. This is made with true like appreciation and quality to detail for even like the moments of like holding the tricorder upside down, like all these little asides, all these little moments that make this film so much bigger. Um, By the way, you know, one of the catalysts in my thing, I'm just dropping little things throughout, but one of the catalysts was that um, Tim Allen is so upset that he is not in the reboot movie of this thing because it you know the way that Willander Nimoy was in it and stuff like that the same way like Shatner was kind of upset he wasn't in the uh the new uh JJ movie but they they are gonna they CGI'd Alan Rickman to be in the movie like they had gotten his estate they were like oh no we got Alan Rickman and it was like and like and he that was like it was a hard thing for him to wrestle with (laughs) Because he was like upset, but he wasn't in it. But he like he lost a part out to someone who was simply, you know, who had passed on. Um, which was like I always thought was like a, a the worst, just the worst thing for this character to be. Like I can't even get in the. Like, they're casting someone who is not even alive. Um, but uh, but I do think that that's there's a love there, and I think that people that do this should embrace the love of of this world and. I guess now comes to this question of, do we put this into space? Do we put this space movie into space? No, of course not. But I was really glad that we saw it. Wow, look at that. Just immediate. Didn't want to debate it. I mean, are we harder on comedies? How many comedies do we have on this list? <sighs> That's true. Not enough. I mean, you know, like, I, I, like I, I reserve judgment to put this on the side. I don't know if I am so locked on it, but in a, in a way to do a space movie and a comedy, like when you look at our list, we are we falling victim to the same problems that the AFI find, which there's no comedies. We judge it too harshly. Like a good solid 90 minute comedy has a place maybe in the best movies of all time. I'm so not, you have your, your phaser is set to maybe my phaser. my phaser is set to, as long as there's good enough comedy representation on this list, I could have that debate, but right now, with no, like with the very few comedy movies that we've spoken about on this podcast, I am not willing to let a comedy just drop by the wayside so willy nilly. Well, no, 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 no. I am no, not no. going to have a list with both Buzz Lightyear and Jason Nesmith on it, so we can talk wow. about getting rid okay. of Toy Story. How do you feel about that? I would easily get rid of Toy Story. Over I mean, there are Galaxy actually Quest. better Pixar's to swap in. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's where we're at right now. Uh, we want to continue this conversation with you online. Like we said, you can jump on our Discord. You can jump into uh, either one over at uh, discord.gg slash HDTGM or discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Both of them are uh, great, uh, fun communities where conversations are popping up all the time. Yeah. And, and we don't are forget to give us your um, pitch for the Oscar movie that could redeem Tim Allen, should you so choose. Ooh, Perhaps just be where he wrestles with uh, what he's become. Uh, yes. Give us that. It'd be a contestant on screen test. And we are still building this series right now. And so we want to continue to look at uh, the polls that we've been putting out there about, you know, which films you want us to do uh, coming up. But we have picked our next film. And so because you uh, picked this, I picked the next one out of the grouping of uh, films. And the one that I picked was something that I haven't revisited in a long time, but the response online was so tremendous for Contact, uh, Jodie Foster film. And uh, so take a listen to the trailer. This morning's detection of an unidentified radio source from deep space can neither be confirmed nor denied. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? 
I checked interferometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Can't be. It's only 26 light years away. I want all these people out of here. Your having sent this announcement all over the world may well constitute a breach of national security. Boy, this isn't a person-to-person -person call. This may be an announcement to get our attention. The president has called an emergency meeting. You know those interlaced frames that we thought were noise? This has structure. I'm going to recommend to the president that we militarize this project immediately. There's no reason to believe that their, their intentions are hostile. There's no proof of that. Why don't they just speak English? Mathematics is the only truly universal language, Senator. Buried within the message itself is the key to decoding it. Those look like engineering schematics, almost like blueprints. It is our belief that the message contains instructions for building some kind of machine. A machine? It might turn out to be some kind of a transport. Transport? The fact is, you don't know what it does. It could be anything. Nobody's saying this is dangerous. They're going to build it. Who gets to go, though? It's complicated, Ellie. Who gets to go? By doing this, you're willing to risk your life. You're willing to give your life and die for this. Why? That was beautiful. And you know what? Because we started this episode with uh, William Shatner yelling at people, I thought we might end with Shatner as well from a movie that came out the same year as Galaxy Quest. Have you ever seen the movie Free Enterprise? Oh, yes, I have. Oh, it's like a kind of romantic comedy where Shatner tries to help a bunch of geeky yep. people get laid. Okay, yep. cool. Well, then I will leave us because it's been such a long time since I've played a bad rap song to torture you, Paul, with William Shatner's rap from the movie Free Enterprise all about Julius Caesar. Enjoy, everyone. Ooh. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. No tears, te tears, te tears for Caesar. Evil that men do lives after him. The good is often turned with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus have told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all honorable men. 